I'm so thankful for Daniel uh, Flores. I'm thankful for Andre who preached uh, over the course of the last three weeks as I had been on vacation and then had been traveling. Um, but today uh, we, we are back to uh, the book of Hebrews. And I'll point you to where we're going in just a minute. But I want to start with a little audience participation this morning, okay? Um, there are some really important people in the Bible, okay? Now, one obvious one is Jesus, so don't say that name in just a moment. Uh, okay, but I want to hear from you. What are some other really important people in the Bible? So just start calling them out. Moses. Moses. Paul, thank you. I heard that none. David, Peter. Abraham. There's some important women too. Ruth, Esther, Mary, Lydia. Very good. Leah, right? Like, good, good. Um, we could keep going. You, you, you know your Bibles. You know some of those important names. Why didn't anybody say Melchizedek? Why, why are you laughing? When was the last time any of you met a Melchizedek? I've met Leah's and Mary's and Peter's and Paul's and Moses. I haven't met Moses, uh, but David's and... Right? Isn't it interesting? Some names like are very much used, others not. Um, but Melchizedek, I, no, I have never met a Melchizedek. Well... The author of Hebrews, uh, and we haven't been in Hebrews in a few weeks, so just a couple things to recap. We don't know who this author is, lots of speculation, uh, but this is a letter, uh, but it is a sermonic letter. So it's a letter to a group of people. There's very specific uh, concerns and what we could call pastoral comments, but, but it's, a, it's, it's a sermon. I mean, there's just glorious truth. Like our subtitle on the screen, Jesus is greater, like he is better than all of it, uh, so we don't know who the author is, but our author has brought up this guy Melchizedek a few different times. And if you've been with us in our series that goes back into the fall, we, we heard his name in chapter 5 a couple of times. Um, Daniel, who preached a couple weeks ago in uh, Hebrews 6, referenced his name. Uh, but it's like he wants to tell us, this author, about Melchizedek, but then he's got a few other things to say. And he starts to talk about Melchizedek, and, and then he actually says, about this, that is Melchizedek, I have much to say, but you're, you're not able to hear. Maybe you remember that, that uh, warning. That was one of the warning passages earlier in, in Hebrews. But here's the truth. If it wasn't for Hebrews, um, we probably wouldn't give Melchizedek much thought. And honestly, we don't give Melchizedek much thought. And I think you'll, you'll, you'll understand why today. Um, he only comes up uh, in uh, Genesis 14 in like three verses, like that's it. Like he's a real person and there's this account of him. We're going to look at it. And then he's referenced in Psalm 110. And then the writer to the Hebrews brings for us and for his hearers this awareness of this character. So he is important, you know, maybe he needs to be a name we name our sons. Uh, maybe not. It's kind of one of those weird names. A kid would probably take a lot of grief if his name was Melchizedek. That is sure. Uh, but what we're going to see in chapter 7 is our author finally unpacks the significance of this, this person. Again, ultimately is to say that Jesus is the great high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, okay? So that, that's where the whole chapter goes, as I said, referencing Psalm 110, referencing Genesis 14. By the way, Psalm 110, it is the most quoted chapter of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Psalm 110 is quoted all the time. It's 
That ought to tell us something. It's pretty important. One commentator notes this. The book of Hebrews does not merely reference this encounter that Abraham Abraham has with Melchizedek. The, The writer in the book of Hebrews draws deep theological comparisons between Melchizedek and Jesus that inform how we understand Jesus' identity as our great high priest. In other words, in order to understand who Jesus is more fully, we must understand who Melchizedek is. It is a name we really need to know. My kids, I love my kids. They always ask, Dad, how's your sermon? Dad, what's your sermon on? And, and, and so last night... It's on Melchizedek, and, and then this morning, one of the other kids, what's your sermon on Melchizedek? Well, who's that? Well, you need to be in this service, because like, I don't have a one-sentence clean, you know, like, like on, on the one hand, if we just stayed in our text this morning, this is what we would learn. The great king and priest Melchizedek, he's greater than Abraham, he's, who was the greatest patriarch of the Jewish people, and therefore, he's greater than the priesthood that comes from Abraham, the Levitical priesthood. Okay, so that, that's, like, that's what our passage is all about. Um, not very awe-inspiring, uh, sermonic, changing our life kind of a, a thought. Uh, you know, sometimes God's word has stuff to teach us. And, and so it's okay, really, though I, I kind of want to warn you, um, if you have a Bible, you're going to be flipping and turning, going back to the Old Testament. Um, Andre, when he spoke, he, he said he would, you know, try to go slow enough. He flew. Um, <laughs> I think so. I was sitting right over there. And I, I hope not to fly, but we do have a lot of ground to cover. But here's the thing. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at chapter 7, 11 to 28. And that's where those connections about Jesus being greater than Melchizedek are, are overtly stated. But we, de- we need to deal with 1 to 10, and I chose to, to divide this chapter into two in, instead of trying to do too big of an overview. So... We are going to begin in Hebrews 7, uh, 1 to 10 this morning. So that's, that's where I'd point you. And as I said, we will make our way to Psalm 110, to Genesis 14, back to Hebrews, um, all in a couple of hours uh, or less. So I'm going to read, and you can follow along, Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers and sisters, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior 
is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, help us understand your word today, and I I pray you'd help me speak clearly. Um, This is important. It's in your word. Nonetheless, even so, like we've been singing about, like we called attention to at the start, um, that that beautiful, wonderful name of Jesus, the, the light of the world that stepped down from heaven and, and was born, um, part of why he is so special, why he's greater than, is, is because of this person who represents him, who points to him. And so help us, help us. And I pray too, that we would have just a, an awe, we would be in awe, true biblical worshipful awe, reverence of you and how you've laid out your word and what is in your word. Um, even in something that may just seem not important, um, but, but how you, you put it there and for a reason. So anyway, please work, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, now that you've been in Hebrews 7, Now turn in your Old Testament uh, to Psalm 110. As I mentioned, this is the most quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. Over and over again, uh, it is used. And and the writer to the Hebrews has already quoted um, Psalm 110 um, at various times. Two questions we want to sort of answer. Now, this isn't going to be a complete exposition of Psalm 110, maybe when we do another Psalms series like we've done in summers past, uh, we will deal with all of the nuances of Psalm 110. But, but as we're thinking about Hebrews 7, Melchizedek, here are the two questions uh, we, we need to consider. And I'll just actually give them to you one at a time. The first is, who wrote Psalm 110? Now, that's a question that's called an introductory question. If you have studied your Bibles, um, and maybe the Bible you own has a section at, at the beginning of each book that, that covers uh, who wrote it, you know, kind of the who, what, when, where, why questions related to a particular book. Um, well, the Psalter, the Psalms, um, were written by several individuals, David being one of them, uh, there's others, um, and and. We come to Psalm 110, and if you're looking at your Bible, maybe your Bible it looks like mine. Mine says, a psalm of David, and then uh, begins verse 1. Uh, so the question is, is that original? A lot of the headings of our Bibles aren't originally there, um, and uh, it gets a little trickier with the psalms sometimes to know if, if that is something edited, added later, or was that originally there? Uh, but we want to we answer this question, though. Who wrote it? Now, let's suppose for a moment it's not David. Okay? It says a psalm of David, but let's say someone added that later. Okay? So then, um, let, let me read verse 1 just as it sits. The Lord, and notice in your Bible, that should be all capital, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's, that's God's covenant name. That's Yahweh, okay? The Lord says to my Lord, 
So Lord again, but not in all capitals, okay? The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So if this is not a psalm of David, if it's written by, you know, someone in the court of David or something else, then this, this scribe is saying, the Lord God said to my Lord, David. Like, like, so David's the Lord. He's the king. And then what did God say to David? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, that doesn't really work, especially because of the fact that when you, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus, uh, both in Matthew and in Mark, let me read from Mark chapter 12. Jesus is in the temple teaching and he said, Mark twelve thirty five, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, in one sense he is. Jesus isn't denying that. The, the Messiah, the Christ, does come in the line of David and makes him then a son of David. Do you, you understand that? But, but Jesus is saying, he's not negating that fact, but, but the scribes wanted to make that almost the absolute thing. So he's saying, okay, the scribes, they say that the Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David, but David himself in the Holy Spirit. What an, what an amazing statement. Jesus is saying that, no, this psalm, David, the psalm of David, it was David under the inspiration of the Spirit declared The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, that that second Lord. So how then is he his son? And again, Jesus isn't negating that the Messiah is, in one sense, the son of David, but it's not the only sense. So Jesus' reading of Psalm 110 is that, no, this is a Psalm of David. This This is what... Is meant. And so really, and this gets into textual criticism things, which is simply that study of, again, what's in the manuscript. Uh, that, that superscript or, or whatever, a psalm of David, it belongs. You can trust that in, in your Bible, Psalm 110. Um, it's in the oldest manuscripts. Jesus referred to it, in fact, as being of David. And we need to understand that. Who wrote Psalm 110? It's David. Now, that brings up a, lo- a lot of other questions, too. I, in fact... I'm going to um, reference Don Carson. He's one of my favorite living New Testament scholars. And uh, he gave a message that I heard now, I think nine years ago, um, called Getting Excited About Melchizedek. And uh, so I kind of remembered that message even as uh, we were coming to Melchizedek in our study. And so I've gone back and uh, found some of my notes and actually found his message. And, and it's very helpful. But Don Carson points out, and just kind of let this be a mental exercise for a minute. You know, how did David, how did he write that, right? Jesus says David was moved by the Spirit, and we call that inspiration, okay? And that comes from 2 Timothy 3, where, where the Apostle Paul says that all Scripture, and, and at that point, he's talking mostly about the Old Testament, is breathed out by God. That's kind of literally what it says, God breathed, and some of our translations have have changed that to say inspired. And you've heard me say, um, it's not the same as the way we use that word in our day. Like we may, we may speak of someone like Steph Curry being inspiring when we watch him play, okay? That's not what theologians and the church Christians mean when they say that God's word is inspired. I mean, it, it can be, oh, wow. But we're, we're meaning God breathed. God, God spoke somehow this mixture of, of his words 
um, through human authors. And some, some of the people that wrote parts of the Bible, they, they heard from God, write this, and, and they wrote. But, you know, David, had he been out all day in battle, uh, and then did he come in and say, okay, God, I'm ready for the next song? All right, David, here you go. The Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord. Yeah, probably not. Probably wasn't like that. Um, we, we don't know is the point, you know, but it's kind of weird to think about. He's, he's writing this song. The Psalms are poetic. They're musical. And he, he's writing about his Lord, the Messiah, the, the, the promised Christ. And he, he's writing the song somehow under inspiration that, that God has got a word for the, the Messiah. And, and so that gets us then to what, what the psalm says. Okay, so who wrote it? I think it's David. We, we could talk a lot more about that. But then what, what in fact does the psalm say? Well, again, just briefly, there are two oracles to Psalm 110. Okay, look at verse 1. Oracle 1, the Lord, has sa- the Lord says to my Lord, and then the oracle. And then verse 4, second oracle, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, and then the oracle. So that's, that's one way to break Psalm 110 down, two oracles. So oracle 1. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This, this phrase, if Psalm 110 is the most quoted uh, Old Testament chapter in the New Testament, this phrase about the Lord being at the Lord's right hand, okay, at God's right hand, that, that phrase comes up and nuances of it over and over. Let, let me share with you six. Acts chapter 2, verse 34 says that David did not ascend into heaven. So it implies that the one who did ascend, we quoted it in our Apostles' Creed, Jesus died, buried, rose, then ascended to the right hand of God. So this one that did ascend, who's at the right hand, he's greater than David. So that's one inference. A second inference the one who ascended is greater than angels. That was back in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. For to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand? None, okay? Number three, the one who, uh, who is at the right hand is exalted to God's side. That's language we find in Acts 5. Uh, Jesus whom you killed, God exalted at his right hand. Fourth, his, his, this is Carson's word, his session, that is Jesus' place now as seated at the right hand of God, that, that session he now occupies as Lord, waiting his return, his being seated at the right hand of God, it, it grounds his intercession for us. Romans 8.34, Acts 5.31, talk about how Jesus at the right hand prays for us, intercedes for us. Like that. Every time I think of that, read that quote, that, that, that almost just floors me. Wow. And, and of course, 1 John brings that idea out too, that, that when, we, when we sin, and we do, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus is at the Father's side going, Father, I've, I've covered that sin. Just hear that. If you're a Christian, if you've been forgiven, if you've been saved, and you still sin, which you do, <laughs> I'm first in line. And we confess 
we're confessing to God, and right now, Jesus at the right hand of God in his session there is our advocate with the Father. It says, it's okay, Father, I've forgiven that one. That's stunning. And he, he intercedes for us. In that session also, it signals the completion of sacrifice. So we'll get to this stuff later. Hebrews 10 is going to talk about how the Le- Levitical priest um, would stand offering sacrifices repeatedly, right? That was the thing. It kept going. But it says in Hebrews 10 that um, Christ sat down and, and at the right hand of God, and that's a signal that the, the sacrifice is done once for all. There's no more need for sacrifices, okay? The cross work finished it, and that's why Jesus could say from the cross, it is finished. Among other things, his whole work of saving us is finished, but no more sacrifices, no more. And then six, um, him, Jesus being the one at the right hand uh, means that he awaits that ultimate surrender of his enemies, right? Where, again, this language of conquest, right? Back to 110, sit at my right hand, God the Father says to the Son, until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, that, that reality, that, that life is moving toward a new heaven and a new earth, the literal, visible, bodily return of this one who's at the right hand, and part of that is going to be dealing with his enemies, including Satan himself. All of this is inferring and pointing that in Psalm 110, um, this, this is God the Father speaking to God the Son, and, and David, under inspiration, um, knew that. But then, the second oracle, okay? We're just Again, we've got to keep looking at a couple things here in Psalm 110. Jump to verse 4. The second oracle. The Lord, and notice again, all capital. So it's Yahweh, God the Father, we could think, has sworn and will not change his mind. And here is the oracle. You, and who is he talking to? Not David, but the Messiah, the Christ. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's that, that guy, Melchizedek. Um, so again, this is still being addressed to the Messiah from the Father, but, but it just seems out of place, right? I mean, who, who? Melchizedek? And again, if you know your Bible, you're going, well, he's a com- just think chronologically, like, okay, yeah, he's in Hebrews, and that's kind of where we're dealing with in, in the sermon and whatever, but but Psalm 110, written like a thousand years before Jesus, so just a timeline, think about this, a thousand years, David, under inspiration, writes this, and then you go back to, well, when did Melchizedek show up in, in Genesis 14, in the time of Abraham, another, you know, thousand years or so or, or more, you know, prior, like, what in the world is going on? And here's what's, what's interesting. The law of Moses, so, so again, hang in there, timeline. So here's Abraham, Genesis 14. Fast forward, Abraham and his, his descendants, Isaac, Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. Israel has the 12 sons who are going to be the 12 tribes, right? Uh, and then they're going to go to Egypt, Joseph, the end of Genesis, and then Exodus begins, and there's been a lot of years, and, and the Israelites have been enslaved. God frees them from that slavery through Moses, okay? Moses is when God gives the law. God gives the Ten Commandments and all the other, you know, 400 and some laws. It's, it's then, it's then when in the law it's stated that a priest from the tribe of Levi couldn't be a king. A priest is a priest. 
Okay, that's part of what it meant to be a Levitical priest. That was their, their role. So that was 400 years after Abraham, right? And then David is referring to this one here in, in Psalm 110. And it's very much talking about, about a king. The Lord says to my Lord, so, so Jesus as this one who's at the right hand, he's King Jesus. And we, we talk about that. He's, that's part of what it means for him to be uh, at the right hand. And he's the reigning king. His kingdom has come. We, we pray that, your kingdom come. And Jesus said, my kingdom is at hand. Okay, the Messiah is king. Uh, okay, so we're expecting king. But then in the second oracle in Psalm 110, you are a priest. So David he would have known the law that Moses had given that a priest can't be a priest and a king, but, but you're a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Why would God inspire that? And again, you know, we, we don't know the occasion of David writing this. And I, and I love this though, that, that Carson did in that message. And I, I think he could be right. Why would, why would God have moved David to write that, to say that? Well, one means may have been that David maybe had having, been having what we call in our day his, his devotions, his time with the Lord in Genesis. You see, uh, that was one of the things. Deuteronomy 17 said that kings were supposed to, when they took power, copy the book of the law and make a clean copy. It was to be theirs for reading. And David wasn't perfect, right? He's not this hero. He did a lot of stuff wrong, but but he did love the Lord. He wrote these songs that are part of Jesus' songbook, if you will. So for him to be moved to write about this king, the Lord, who's going to rule and whose foot is going to be on you know, his enemies, and then this, this king who's a priest, right? That, that wouldn't have come from the law of Moses. So where would he have known an idea like that? Well, it's, it's Genesis 14, and, and Carson's thought is that, that just maybe, as David, as king, would have, would have been spending his time in, in the scriptures, he would have read this account. It's interesting, too, to, to think of this about David. When he became king, it was in Hebron, which is south, um, in the south. And so he, he initially became king over two of the tribes uh, after seven years. Seven years, David moved everything up to Jerusalem, okay? And we, we read about that, and now he's king over all 12 tribes. He moves everything from Hebron to Jerusalem. And in 2 Samuel 6, uh, once he's there in Jerusalem, the tabernacle gets moved, okay? So that's now there. And then in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, this, we have the establishment of the Davidic dynasty, David's rule as, as the, the king, that God had planned to be king over his, his people after, of course, the first king, Saul. So everything is being moved. The tabernacle, which is the priestly system, you've got to track with me here, is now in Jerusalem. And we need to now think about this word, Jerusalem. There were, there were lots of towns in the ancient world uh, known as Salem. Okay, that was a common ta- name for a town. So there's this one town, Jerusalem, okay, and so now this is where David begins to set up some things. Keep that in your mind. And now go to Genesis 14. Are we doing okay? It's okay if you're not. But don't tell me. Hang in there. Just, just remember, David's moved under inspiration to give these oracles, Psalm 110. 
the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, the King, the Messiah, you're going you're gonna to reign, your, your enemies are going to be your footstool. And then the second oracle, you're a priest, this, you king are a priest, and right? That, that shouldn't make sense. That's, that's the point. There should be some, wait a minute. Priests can't be kings. The, the law of Moses says that's not happening. But prior, Genesis 14, we see Melchizedek. Now, just again, a couple of things. Um, in Genesis 14, there's these battles of these kings. Now, we have a hard time in the United States understanding the monarchy, let's be honest, you know, and, and, and so forth. I mean, so this year, right, it's Queen Elizabeth's 70th anniversary of being queen. And probably most of us, you know, it maybe is a little bit interesting, but unless you're Canadian or British, you know, it's not a big deal. Uh, but it is a big deal, right? She, she has reigned longer than most kings and queens in history, at 70 years. It really is astounding, okay, uh, and so forth. But in, in Genesis 14, these kings, and there's a bunch of, like there's a, in this chapter 14, four kings unite to, to fight five other kings. Um, really, these are more of small little towns of like a couple thousand people. Uh, really, these kings are more like mayors, you know, um, of these small villages. And their armies, they're not trained Navy SEALs and special ops, they're, they're like raiding parties, okay? It's, it's primitive is what I'm getting at. I'm not saying they weren't tough, but it's not like, you know, modern day. So in Genesis 14, Abraham's coming back from battle. His nephew, Lot, had been taken captive. This is just summary of what's going on in the chapter. Abraham and his men, they pursued the captors. They, they won, they, were, they defeated them, and they brought Lot Lot back uh, safe along with all the spoils of victory. That's Genesis 14, 8 through 16. And now if you're looking, let me, let me read Genesis 14 starting at 17. Just listen to the flow here. After his return, that's Abraham's, from the defeat of Kedlamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shevev, that is the king's valley. Now skip to verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. And and it goes on. That all makes sense. Abraham and Lot, they're rescued and they meet in verse 17, the king of Sodom, and the king of Sodom, verse 21, speaks to Abraham, right? That, that flows. But if you were looking in your Bible, I skipped a few verses. Because verses 18, 19, and 20, again, are like out of place. So listen one more time, and this time I won't skip. So verse 17, after his return from the defeat, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abraham at the valley of Shevev, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, remember Jerusalem, Salem? Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he, Melchizedek, blessed Abram and said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. 
And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, <laughs> right? What in the world? Melchizedek, those three verses are out, out of nowhere. They, they, just, they disrupt the flow of thought here, unless there's a reason. And again, um, there's a lot to, to say, but just absorb this. This happened in the time of Abram. This, this guy shows up. That's the only thing we know about him. And then a thousand years go by. David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writing about the, the promised Messiah, would say, this, this, this one that the Lord speaks to is going to be a king and his foot is going to have as a footstool his enemies. And, and Yahweh says to this king, you're a priest. Shouldn't be. At least Levitically, it doesn't work. Priests can't be kings, right? That's what happened to Saul. Think about Saul. I meant to mention it earlier. What got him in trouble in, in that story? He, he did what Samuel was supposed to do. God had said, you know, to wait, and, and Saul rushed and did priestly things, and, and Saul was king, and so that was part of Saul's problem. So David knows this, but David, under inspiration, references that the king, Messiah, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and all we have are these three verses. Don Carson writes this, from the immediate context, we should learn that Melchizedek is a foil to Sodom. In, in the Genesis account, Abraham won't have anything to do with Sodom. Right? That's what we read on in verses uh, 21 to 24. Abraham doesn't acknowledge Sodom, the king of Sodom, really. He doesn't want anything from him. He won't receive anything. He won't give him anything. There's coldness. Sodom represents part of that wickedness of the valleys. And the story goes on. And some of you know the story of Sodom. Melchizedek, though, he's a foil to all this. He, and Carson says he's of another order. Now, to conclude, back to Hebrews 7. And as I said, all of this is really a setup for next week. 11 to 28, celebrate that Jesus is greater. So listen now to Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, and, and by the way, actually, we should start at chapter 6, verse 20. Look one verse prior. 19, to get the flow of thought. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, right? That's just what Genesis said. Priest of the most high God. Yep, that's what Genesis told us. Met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. Yep, that's, this is just an exposition of Genesis 14. And blessed Abraham. Yep, verse 2. And to him Abraham gave or apportioned a tenth part of everything. Abraham tithed of the spoils to Melchizedek. And then we, we begin to have now our, our writer say some, some additional things. So let me keep reading. He is first off by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's, that's what Melchizedek means just by translation. He goes on to say, and then he is also king of Salem, right? That's, that's the status he gets, Salem. Okay, this, this place, a lot of Salems in the ancient world. And, and that is the word Salem, right? We hear Jerusalem, Salem, but that's a Greek 
Greekized, Greekized version of shalom. Salem means shalom. Jerusalem, it's my little attempt at sounding Hebrew. And therefore, the end of verse 2, to be king of Salem means he is king of peace, king of shalom. And then the writer says he is without father or mother or genealogy. And I think it's a reference to the text. I, I don't believe the writer thinks that Melchizedek, you know, it, it wasn't a real human because notice the other things. I mean, notice um, other statements here that, that are made. Um, but resembling the Son of God. See, right away, right away, that, that word is key. This, this figure that showed up as a foil to Sodom, this, this king of righteousness by translation of his name, this king of peace by, because he's the king of a town called Peace, um, this one who David, some years later, under inspiration, now in Jerusalem, writes and thinks of and references and says, the Lord said to the king, you are a priest forever. So that is true of Jesus, right? His reign and kingdom is forever and, and so on. And so Melchizedek, again, becomes this very, very important, what we could call type. He's a type a figure who points forward to Jesus and what he would do. Verse 3, again, it says that um, he is, is without father or mother or genealogy. Again, this, this is speaking, not I don't think of an angel or of a non-human, but, but again, he was a real human, but, but again, there's this lack of a mention of a father or mother. And of course, we think about uh, Jesus, right, his his human nature was a bit different. He definitely had a mom in terms of human mom, but he didn't have an earthly dad until, of course, Joseph adopted him. So we have this, this typology, this figure that prepares us, and we, we don't even know it. Um, and, and I think that's okay. Most of us, when we do our Bible readings, let's say in Genesis, you know, Melchizedek, it's, it's a scratcher. Like, mm -hmm. But, but I, I just love this because what God does, Genesis, Psalm 110, and Hebrews is saying, oh, look at how it fits together. Look how this fits together. And that's like I, I brought up already. Why does this all matter? Well, again, our, part of the answer is, um, this is showing us our Bible, what, what God did. Like These little things that sometimes seem insignificant, they're not. They, 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 they fit in and so forth. Um, and it's ultimately, in terms of the argument of Hebrews, setting us up to show that, Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical, and that's, that's what the rest of uh, verses 4 through 10 go on to say. Because, right, Abraham, who was the father, if you will, of the tribes, including Levi, right? He was the great-grandpa of the, the 12 tribes, including Levi. Those were the ones to receive tithes. That was what they got. The law said, no, you, you pay your tithe to the Levites. But in this sense, it's like, the Levi, Levi, through Abraham in his loins, that's what the text said, gives a tithe to this one who's greater, right? The lesser pays honor to the greater. So um, we see in the text, Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical, but all of that is preparing us, and, and I'll end with this for next week. You've got to come back for part two. Uh, three things um, about the superiority of the Melchizedek priesthood over the Levitical. Again, as I've already said, First, Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, okay? So, that, you know, typically the greater um, one, you know, wouldn't give. And so that's what we, we see here. Clearly, this, the secondary gives the tithes. Uh, secondly, 
Uh, the second reason we know that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior, because it's e- eternal. This, again, is, is what is stated there about um, Jesus, where it says, your, uh, that, that quote from uh, Psalm 110.4 is everlasting. But then also look ahead at, at verse 8. In the one case, this is the Levitical priest, tithes are received by mortal men. That means they live and die. But in the other case, the Melchizedek priesthood, by one whom it is testified that he lives. You are a priest in the order of Melchizedek forever. So there's this sense that it's, it's different. This, this Melchizedek was, was a priesthood preparing us for the one Jesus who wouldn't die. Only Melchizedek's priesthood is everlasting, which again is because it is pointing to the priesthood of Christ. And then number three, the third reason why Melchizedek's priesthood is superior and we've kind of already said it is because Melchizedek's, Melchizedek himself was superior to Abraham. He was superior to Abraham. And that's what 7, 1 to 10 are, are arguing, all preparing us to see. But now Jesus, whom Melchizedek represented, is greater still. And we will, Lord willing, get to that. Church, our, our Bibles are amazing. If you read things and it, they don't make sense, that's okay. But Take a note down and, and ask some questions of others. Um, read read a, a good commentary or theology book, right? This is fascinating that all of this God knew and, and pointed forward. Um, I hope you see that and I hope you feel that. And then secondly, as we sung about this morning and we're going to end with this, I'll invite the, the worship team to come back up with me. Uh, something greater has come. Right? And, and then Melchizedek, as great as Melchizedek was, something greater has, has come. This Jesus who we've been singing about this morning. Uh, and we're going to end our service by singing a modern hymn that celebrates Christ and, and the truth of Christ alone. Um, and in him alone our hope is found. This one who is a, the, the ultimate foil of everything else in the scriptures. It all it all points to him. So would you pray with me and then we will we will sing end our service by singing this song. So Father, I know this was a bit academic today. Thank you for the grace of our church. In, in that regard, but please, if, if nothing else, these, these last two things I've tried to say, may we be in awe at how the Bible fits what you did under inspiration to move David to reference this sort of random story, and then what you've done in Hebrews, and we'll get to it more next week to see that Jesus is, in, in fact, so much greater, and our hope is found in him and in him alone. I pray in Jesus' name.